0: And just before we get into unpacking the passage in the way that we normally would, I want to tell you a story. And I hope that this story will in some way help us to understand. It will shine some light on these verses and our understanding of them. And so I'm going to read you a short excerpt from an essay called An Expedition to the Pole by a lady called Annie Dillard who describes the ill-fated Franklin Polar Expedition. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard of that. I don't know how up you are on your history of polar explorations. Uh, But it was an expedition in the mid-19th century that went very, very badly wrong. Uh, And Anne Dillard writes this. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two, three-masted sailing ships. Each vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two or three-year Voyage. Note that. They took 12 days of coal for a two or three year voyage. (laughs) Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200 volume library and a hand organ that played 50 tunes. China place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets and sterling silver flatware. The officers' sterling silver knives, forks and spoons were particularly interesting. The silver was ornate Victorian design, heavy at the handles and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crests. The expedition carried no special clothing for Arctic conditions, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. The ships set out amid enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Canada's Lancaster Sound. He reported back to England on the high spirits of the officers and men. He was the last European to see any of them alive. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from the Franklin expedition all over the frozen sea. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of that expensive sterling silver flatware. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. They had hauled it 65 miles, and with the two skeletons were some chocolate, guns, some tea, and a great deal of table silver. Many miles south of these two was another skeleton alone. This one was a frozen officer in uniform. Trousers and jacket of fine blue cloth edged with silk braid with sleeves bearing five cloth colored buttons each. Over this uniform, the dead man had worn a blue great coat with a black silk neckerchief. Sir John Franklin and 138 men died because they sorely underestimated the requirements of Arctic expedition. They ignorantly imagined a pleasure cruise amongst the familiar comforts of their English officers' clubs and chose what would be nice and comfortable instead of what would be necessary for their survival and the success of their mission. And in the verses that we look at today, Jesus is at pains to make sure that no one enters the Christian life so woefully unprepared as those men on that Arctic expedition. Because he knows that if people enter under false pretenses, if people come on what they think is a pleasure cruise, if people determine to try and surround themselves with all the nice things rather than that what's necessary for their survival, they simply won't Make it so let's read together and see how he prepares them and how he prepares us to follow him. We read from verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. I wonder if we can just skip on to the two slides, maybe. Cool. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds were gathered around Jesus, and we've seen already in Luke's gospel this happening time and time again. Huge numbers of people were gathered around Jesus because of the amazing signs and wonders that he was performing and the promise of the coming kingdom of God. They were gathered around him because they liked the buzz. They they were gathered around him because they wanted to see what miracle he might perform next, what amazing sign, perhaps what incredible provision of food he might do. Maybe there'd be another feeding of the 5,000 Maybe there'd be another person risen from the dead, another incredible healing, perhaps even for them. And so these crowds gathered around him. But many of them were like Franklin's men, hoping for a pleasure cruise. They wanted all these nice things from Jesus, food, good health. They wanted all of these things. but Jesus he isn't actually interested in simply gathering a large crowd by offering nice things. He isn't there to be some kind of life enrichment addition. He's Lord of all. And it's imperative that we see him that way and respond to him as such. And so he turns to this crowd who've come to him for the nice things and he says this to them. If anyone comes to me And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Ouch. Now, we've got to clarify first that Jesus isn't actually saying that you should despise your family or yourself. This isn't a call to to self-loathing or a call to shunning loved ones. Scripture is full of instructions and exhortations to, to love and honor other people, to love your neighbor as yourself, to honor your father and mother, to consider others as better than yourself. Jesus isn't contradicting Scripture in those commands. Instead, what he's saying here, he's using a, a kind of a device of speech that contrasts two things. It's like hyperbolic speech to make a point. What he's saying here is that if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be his disciple, that your love for him should be so all-consuming. Your devotion to him should be so overwhelming. Your. Obedience to him and your love for him should be so consuming that by comparison, the love you have, even for your nearest and dearest, even for your family, would seem like hatred. So overwhelming, so powerful, so consuming is your love for Jesus that that in contrast to that, by comparison to that, measured up against that love for him, It would seem almost as though you hated everyone else. Not that you do. You're supposed to love them. (laughs) It's about contrast. He is such a great prize. But our love for him, our devotion to him will cause everything else to pale into insignificance. He's to be our first loyalty. And all other relationships must take second place. That's what Jesus says here. It's like, he's got to be first if you're going to follow him. Every other relationship, even the very closest of human relationships, must take second place. What Jesus is saying here is that, actually, unless you're prepared to lose absolutely everything for the sake of following him, then you can't follow him. If there's anything that you would choose over him, You can't follow him. That's what he's saying. And so he begins with relationships. So if there's any relationship that trumps your relationship with him, there's any relationship you prize more highly than him, any person you want to please more than you want to please him, he says, "You, you can't follow me. It's challenging. And he moves on to your own life. If your desire for comfort, if your desire for for pleasure, for health, for for longevity of life or anything else weigh heavier in your decision-making process than pleasing him and honoring him and obeying him, then Jesus says, you can't follow me. You can't be my disciple. This is hard teaching. Jesus will not pretend that following him is without cost. And having sounded that note really clearly, Jesus goes on to give a couple of illustrations. He says this from verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other king is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These illustrations are deliberately ridiculous, okay? The audience and us, we're allowed to get the joke, okay? When Jesus says, like, what kind of idiot, effectively is the thrust of what he's saying, like, what kind of fool who wants to build a tower wouldn't sit down and work out if they had the means to finish it before they started? Like, you'd have to be stupid, Right? And the reason he gives is because you'll get halfway through, realize you haven't got the means to do it, and then you'll be up for public ridicule of your your neighbors. That's what he says. It's like, seriously, only a fool would start a project like that without first calculating the cost to make sure he could complete it. And the king, I mean... No king in his right mind would go to war when he was so ridiculously outnumbered. I know we watch Hollywood films that make it look very much the contrary. And you get like Lord of the Rings, and there's just a few of them, and they're at Helm's Deep, and the Orcs, and everyone else is oncoming, and you think, there's no way they're going to do it. And they go, and they win a heroic victory. And we like to think that's how it works. This, This illustration is supposed to tap into the fact that actually we do understand reality. And if you've only got 10,000 men and you come up against 20,000, your chances aren't good. You would be a very bad king who cared very little for the welfare of his people if you went into that environment. The stakes are high. So before setting out on that, a king would make sure (laughs) that this wasn't going to just result in all of his people led away in captivity. He'd try and negotiate terms of peace using these illustrations jesus wants to make it very clear to us if you're going to follow him you need to first count the cost you need to know what you're getting into guys this is important tragically often well-meaning christians have fed people a half-truth about following jesus They've spoken of a a costless faith. They've sold them a Jesus who just wants to make your life nice. A God who's more like some kind of cosmic wish-granting genie at your beck and call than he is creator and Lord of all things. And our temptation can be to, to try and appeal to people, to promote faith In Christ as some kind of life enrichment plan like follow Jesus and he'll he'll add all these great things to you he'll make all your wildest dreams come true you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and have everything you ever dreamed of and it's a very appealing message isn't it I mean it sounds really good like we all instinctively like the sound of that it's like yeah I'm up for following that kind of a Jesus like he's just like everything I want. He's just going to like give it to me. That sounds awesome. Uh, but Jesus says nothing of the sort. In fact, he says, unless you're prepared to lose everything for the sake of following him, if it really came to it, unless you're prepared to be Cut off from your family for the sake of following him, unless you're prepared to be rejected by your friends for the sake of following him, unless you're prepared to lose everything you have in this world, including your very life, for the sake of following him, then you can't come after him. Like the person who hasn't counted the cost of building the tower before they start, Jesus says, Count the cost. Make sure you understand what you're signing up for before you start. It's essential that we see this. See, because when people think that it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops in following Jesus, then when suffering comes when trials come, when there's conflict between what the world requires of them and what Christ commands of them, when there's opposition, then all too often people grow disillusioned. But This isn't what I signed up for. I, I, thought, I, I thought it was going to be like I'd have everything I ever dreamed of if I followed Jesus. I thought it was just like, bless me with all the things I want, Jesus. They fall away or grow cynical or disillusioned because, like Franklin's men, they were not adequately prepared. Or like the foolish builder who didn't sit down and do his sums, they hadn't first counted the cost. Jesus is saying, you need to know. You need to be prepared. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, you might lose everything else. If you're not prepared to lose your friends and your family, if you're not prepared that you might even lose your own life, then don't start. If there's anything, any relationship, any material possession, any aspect of your life that you, that you want to draw a box around and say, Jesus, you can have everything but not that. Like, I won't give up that. I couldn't lose that then Jesus says, counted the cost? If we want to do a meatloaf and say, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that, then Jesus says, have you cancelled the cost? When we do that, what we actually reveal is that Jesus isn't truly Lord. Instead, we're we're still trying to sit on the throne of our own lives. We want to be Lord. We want to be in charge. We want it our way. We want Jesus on our terms, not his. And Jesus wants to be very clear with us. That'll never work. We're spiritually like Franklin's men, unprepared and headed for disaster when we approach life in that way. Now this crowd who Jesus addressed here, he knew that they would soon face extreme persecution if they followed him. The like of which most of us have probably not even dared to imagine. They'd be beaten, excommunicated from family and friends alike, put out of the synagogue, some of them stoned and put to death for proclaiming Jesus is Lord. And men and women throughout the history of the church have experienced the same. Been beaten and tortured, imprisoned, maligned, misunderstood and martyred for their faith. They've counted the cost. Many today around the world face this same treatment for proclaiming Jesus is Lord. I think sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that in very comfortable, very accepting, generally of our faith, 21st century Britain. But it's happening right now around the world. And and the the truth is, is that that kind of persecution may never come in our lifetimes here in the UK, though it might do. In fact, society, if you look at what's happening broadly in society at the moment, in the media, politically, increasingly it's becoming hostile towards the Christian faith, becoming intolerant of a Christian and biblical worldview. So I think probably more of us are going to experience a greater degree of cost than we've experienced before. But whatever the case, we must count the cost. So your life might not be demanded of you. Your family may well not abandon you. I hope they don't. But Jesus calls us to abandon our self-pleasing ways, to respond to him in obedience, to daily die to our selfish desires, to, to take up our cross and follow him. To daily decide that instead of living to please ourselves, we're going to live to please Him. Instead of it being our agenda, we want to follow His. That we're going to do as He asks of us in our relationships and our resources. We cannot casually stumble into the Christian life. Jesus is clear. We need to count the cost. And there is always a cost. Even at a very low level, there's a cost. If we stopped, as a family, it's just an illustration of cost, and the same is true for many of you. If we stopped giving to church, there's all kinds of things we could do. Like, we could enjoy a decent foreign holiday every year. It'd be great. Over the years of our marriage, actually, Jenny and I, Quite possibly could have saved up a deposit for a house if we'd have not given to church. There's all kinds of things we could have done. But actually, none of those things really matter in the end. So we're not investing in trying to build a comfortable life here and now, we're investing where it really counts in the kingdom of God. Many of you modeled something of this last week when you gave sacrificially, when you gave to the gift day. Like, you could have used that money. There's some large sums of money. You could have used that money for all kinds of things. Some of you could have had some great holidays if you hadn't given to our building fund. Like, you could have, you know, it could have gone towards a new car. You could have got some new clothes. Like, could have been nice. You could have been a bit more like Franklin's men on that expedition, surrounded by fine flatware and chocolate and a 1,200-volume library. I like the sound of the 1,200-volume library. But you didn't. Giving the kind of money you gave last week makes no sense from a worldly human perspective. It's stupid, Like, why on earth would you give money to that? Like, (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless you've heard Jesus call to count the cost. And you've responded by saying, yeah, we're counting the cost. We're going to follow you. We're not going to get that new car. We're not going to go on that holiday. We're not going to... Go out for a meal this month, whatever it was for you. You've counted the cost. It's easy for us to pay lip service to the call of discipleship without actually sacrificing to follow Christ. But as Christians, there's nothing in our lives relationships, resources, money, job, our very lives itself. There's nothing if we follow Jesus over which we have the right to point at it and say Jesus that's off limits now you might be thinking right now this doesn't sound very appealing to me (laughs) like this just sounds hard and painful like where's the good news why would anybody sign up to that Be a Christian and lose everything. Like, it doesn't sound great, does it? I mean, Jesus is not a good salesman. Come and follow Jesus. Rejection likely. Persecution probable. Poverty and death possible. (laughs) That's Jesus's sales pitch. It's not a lot like the Franklin expedition. Perhaps it's more akin to an advertisement published by another polar explorer. Ernest Shackleton, the head of his Antarctic expedition, just after the turn of the century, ran this advert looking for men to join him on his voyage. Maybe he learned from Franklin's mistakes. He advertised saying, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold Long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. He was up front. There was a cost to count. It Might cost them everything. But the reward was there too. I don't know if you noticed. He said honor and recognition in event of success. Now, what's on offer for those who count the cost of following Christ is far, 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 far better than honor and recognition from people. See, Jesus has already said in chapter 14, verse 14, we read it together last week when Dave spoke. It says this about those who will come after him, those who will follow him. We read from 14:14, "And you will be blessed, because they can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Those who come after Jesus, those who are prepared to count the cost and give up everything for the sake of following Him and glorifying Him, theirs is an eternal reward. It's not limited to our present fleeting existence, but is so much more vast in its scope. Even the things that seem like the greatest reward in this life, even the things that seem like the greatest delights, even the things that seem most beautiful, most worthwhile, most stable here and now are like mere shadows compared to the glorious multicolored three-dimensional reality of spending eternity in the presence of God Jesus tells another parable in Matthew 13 44 he says this the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field when a man found it he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field again The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. These two people that Jesus talks about, these illustrations, sold everything they had, they gave up everything, they counted the cost absolutely for the great treasure in the field, for the pearl of great price. And Jesus is saying, guys, this is, is how you should respond to me. This is how you should respond to my kingdom. So you, you, you look at the cost, the so-called cost of giving up things, maybe relationships, maybe even death. But when you compare it with the, the great treasure of Christ, of intimacy with him, of being with him forever, then the the cost pells into insignificance. Whatever the so-called cost, what we gain in Christ is of immeasurably greater worth. Relationships, possession, wealth, health, these things are in general good things, but they're not ultimate. And they can't truly and lastingly satisfy us. And Jesus knows that. All of this stuff that we are to be prepared to give up. All of this stuff which we are to be prepared to leave behind for the sake of pursuing him. Jesus knows. They they can't truly satisfy us anyway. They promise something they can't actually deliver on. With all of these things we're tempted to to use them to try and meet a felt need in our lives. In relationships, with possessions, in our profile, our our standing in work, our standing in society, where we are on the property ladder, where we are on our career ladder, all of these different things we look to and we try and use them to add something to us, whether it's grasping for a sense of value, of worth, whether it's Looking for our identity, whether it's looking for some sense of security or stability or comfort, whether it's for status, but those things don't ever truly deliver on what they promise. Our value, identity, security, and comfort can only truly, lastingly be found in Jesus. And so Jesus won't try to draw you to himself with gimmicks, an office of short-lived temporary pleasure. He doesn't draw you in on the promise of an easy life now, riches, the adoration of people, Jesus never promises us those things. Instead, he's clear about the cost. Everything that we're tempted to look to for identity and value and purpose and status, all these things that we pack around ourselves to try and give ourselves some kind of sense of significance, all of them, Jesus says, we've got to be willing to lose for the sake of knowing him in return we find in him everything we're looking for everything we're hoping for in those things we find in him in its purest and truest and fullest most enduring form in Jesus we find our true and eternal hope in Jesus we find our security and identity and comfort both for now and for all eternity when you balance this out, when you sit down and, and weigh up the cost, it's a no-brainer. One of the earliest fathers of the Christian faith, a man called Augustine, had filled his life up with pleasures of this world. He, he was on a pleasure cruise like Franklin's men. He was drinking, filled his life with women and all kinds of stuff. But he was deeply dissatisfied. He was deeply dissatisfied until he came to Christ. And he wrote this. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. All the so-called costs don't truly satisfy us. They leave us restless. They leave us searching for more. In that light, we see that the call to discipleship in these verses, the call to to count the cost to follow Jesus is actually ultimately good news. Because it's a call to trade in the things that we cannot possibly keep and don't actually fulfill us anyway in exchange for that which we cannot lose and which does ultimately fulfill us and satisfy us. When we realize how good Jesus is, the fullness that we have in him, then it it frees us up to, to join the Apostle Paul in saying, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, Everything, relationships, status, wealth, significance, the approval of people, I I count it all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And yet, most of us have heard that before, haven't we? You've been in church a while. And yet the truth is, we all know the tendency of our hearts to chase after those different things. We get suckered back into believing that they will satisfy us. No, but, but, no, but really, if I did just have a bit more, like I think I, I would be happier. I, would be, I think I'd be satisfied. Like I'm not looking for loads, just a, like a bit of a, you know, or if I just had that relationship, with that significant other, then then I think I would be content then. I, th- I think I would be satisfied. We buy into these promises. We begin to believe that this product or that relationship really will make us happier. We begin to build our lives on them and place our identity in them. But they won't last and when inevitably they don't last, we feel lost. Groping around in the mist, trying to find something else to pin our identity on. Maybe this time it could be being the smartest, or the strongest, the one with the latest tech, the nicest house, the best-looking spouse. But these things can't bear the weight that we try to place on them and they leave us restless and broken-hearted. Ooh! Don't know what that was. It was exciting, wasn't it? (laughs) They leave us restless and broken-hearted. We need to build our lives and build our identity on something altogether more stable, something altogether more enduring than these things. And Jesus came to bring us into that rest. The promise of eternity secured. The promise secured by Jesus at the cross is our true rest. It allows us to make sense of this life. Defining our identity in the finished work of Jesus, in what he's done and who he says we are, frees us to live the way we're designed to. It frees us in our relationship with people and things. Here's an example, maybe. When the fear of being rejected by someone would cause you to step back from obedience to God. The answer is to remember again that you're perfectly accepted by God in Christ. The opinion and approval of people is fleeting and fickle, but in Christ there's absolute security. If the potential of losing your job or not getting a promotion would stop you from living with integrity and living in obedience to Christ... We need to remember that you're not defined by your success or failure in the workplace, but instead by the fact that Christ has adopted you into the family of God, that you're a dearly loved son or daughter created in his image for his glory. No human accolade or status or reward could ever come close to that. we hold on to it if the powerful sway of finances cause you to hesitate in doing what you know God's called you to then stop and remember that money is a resource to be stewarded and in the economy of God it doesn't bring us power or status so we can be open handed with it and say Lord everything I've got is yours I know that it all comes from you anyway and you provide for all you've made so if I have this or I don't have it it doesn't really matter because what really counts is that I have you nothing and no one can ever take that away and so maybe you've come today and you know that the scales are off balance. Like, you've, you've thought about the cost <laughs> and relationships, finances, maybe a particular kind of habit in your life. There's something that for you, you're, you're just, it's weighing heavy and you're like, Jesus, you can have everything but not that. <laughs> and Jesus wants to say come on it's time to redress the balance what i'm offering you what i have for you what i've won for you at the cross what i've secured for you for all eternity is of so much greater worth you'd be crazy not to trust me he is no fool who gives what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose Maybe for for some as well, perhaps you viewed the Christian life like a pleasure cruise up to this point. Like your relationship with God has been based on, like, God, what can you like add to me here and now? Like your prayer life is reflective of that. You you just come to him like, Bless me, Jesus. Like, make make my wildest dreams come true. Would you add this to me? Would you do this? Would you do that? Would you give me one of these? Would you give me one of those? if you do one of these, then I'd be happy. And I I, I just, I want to challenge you today in that. It's it's not that God doesn't bless us with things. It's not that he doesn't provide amazingly in different ways. But our focus has got to be on him. He's the price. He's the price. It's not, all these various things he can add to us or do for us it's knowing him delighting in him being with him now and for eternity I'm gonna invite James